Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and hey, I'm sitting here um, a day, the evening, actually, excuse me, after hearing the official news of the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade and grappling with the reality that we're con- continuously growing into a an increasingly fascist uh, co- country, um, more and more authoritarian. It's terrifying, and. It's frustrating. It's a bunch of different words. I sit there as a cishet black man, right? Without someone without a uterus, um, terrified. And so I can empathize. I can imagine, uh, but I cannot fully grasp how hopeless and terrified millions of other people um, feel in this moment. I will say it is a scary, frightening thought that governmental institutions are getting more power, corporations are getting more power, while people continue to be undermined and their civil rights stripped away, their civil liberties and protections taken away. The fact that it's been a cyclical process where we continue to fight for the same rights that were granted to us a generation ago. Um, The fact that we're trending towards a 1960s era civil rights movement again, the fact that we're having to depend on companies to provide protections um, for us to have the basic care um, that we need to survive, that we are at the, whim of companies companies mind you that historically marginalized people those at the bottom don't even have access to because they don't work at those companies right i regret a company who provided a phenomenal benefit um, in light of roe v wade and plenty of other companies in tech are providing um, benefits through the insurance so that you can cover travel um, and that's that's great but it's also scary because one, again, everyone doesn't work at these companies. And then two, these companies can change their mind. And it feels like we're at this impasse of highly fascist, white supremacist, patriarchal, misogynistic, homophobic, uh, 
xenophobic, ableist regime, leadership, and the most diverse, politically engaged, and socially engaged populace that this country has ever seen. I, I just, I don't know. Like the world, like the people seem to be growing more progressive, but our government continues to grow more and more regressive. It's, it's terrifying. I, I don't, I have ideas of what some answers are, uh, but I, I'm not going to share those today because emotions are still really raw for me. But I came here today on a Saturday uh, to drop a special podcast because we just so recently um, interviewed um, the head of diversity and inclusion for Planned Parenthood. And we talk um, all about this. We did not record this today that you're listening. It's just that um, Living Corporate is always talking to folks um, about relevant topics. And this just happens to be extremely relevant. And I didn't want to wait and sit on it much longer. I wanted to talk about the fact that um, health equity and access is critical to our survival, that black women, and then more specifically, black trans women continue to be at the bottom of every hierarchical ladder that we can imagine that black and brown disabled folks are continually at risk and that threat in this country that um, we're going to have to be more radical in our language and our approach and our praxis. We're going to have to have to adopt a more intersectional, inclusive, justice-oriented framework when it comes to anything that we're calling diversity, equity, or inclusion. And let me say this. There's a lot of white women out there who continue to try to center themselves in this work. I'm going to ask. I've asked several times because there are several white women who listen to Living Corporate. Uh, Some of y'all want to ask me to work for y'all for free and pick my brain for hours while giving me nothing in return. Um, I'm going to ask you to just move to the side, like take whatever spotlight you feel like you should have and hand it to a black or brown woman, hand it to a disabled black or brown woman, hand it to a trans black woman, hand it to someone else. Um, Your continuous um, dedication to whiteness is one of the large reasons why we're here today. Um, I'm, appalled i'm discouraged i'm disgusted i'm genuinely livid and i'm looking at this world that continues to be unsafe not just for me but everyone that looks like me it continues to be unsafe for my daughter and my daughter that is on the way it continues to be unsafe for my mother for my wife for my mother-in-law for my sisters for my sister-in-laws for my stepmother for my aunts, it continues to be unsafe. It continues to grow increasingly unsafe, unwelcoming. Um, and so we have to do something different. We're not going to courageous conversations our way out of this. We're not going to spicy LinkedIn post our way out of this. 
we're not going to internal memo our way out of this. We need something different. We need something radical. We need something honest. We need something intentional. We need something courageous. We need something bold. And we need something strategic. We need something that is not performative. And we need those things years ago. Like we're, we need those things years ago. Like we are well behind. Um, all of that to say, no tap in with Tristan for this episode. Again, special drop. Wanted to really bring this conversation here now. And, um, and thank you. Thank you for listening to Live in Corporate. Check back with you after the conversation. George, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much, man. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, look, I'm thankful to have you here. You know, you are, um, you know, you sit in a unique position. And when, uh, when we were, you know, all, you know, off camera, as we were just kind of pre-production, um, as I heard more about your profile, I just find it such a, it's such a unique uh, cocktail of experiences and, and background. I'd love to hear about your journey um, as the as the chief uh, equity officer uh, at Planned Parenthood Federation uh, for America, and love to just hear un- and understand more about how you got to this role. Sure. So I think the way I'd want to um, just describe um, how I got here um, starts with how it all began. Um, I was raised in the South. I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, um, with parents who were really committed to social justice and. Um, the promise of what uh, this country, the U.S., could be, uh, not just for um, not just for some people, but everybody. Um, and so, from Memphis, you know, part of what was important about that was I was raised in a context of understanding civil rights, social justice, and working across lines of integration and thinking more about how how folks, no matter where they came from, could move an agenda forward around justice. Um, you know, I, my parents um, believed in me and wanted me to go to Morehouse, which was great. Um, and I, uh, you know, I finished Morehouse and then went on to Duke for Divinity School. And um, it was there that I met some really amazing folks, leaders like Sam Proctor and Peter Gomes, who was the former plumber professor of morals and ethics. And Peter Gomes had um, had a distinction of being the you know this big professor at Harvard who was on sabbatical at uh, Duke and teaching, but he also was openly gay. Um, so that was sort of a first bail for me. And then uh, Sam Proctor had been the uh, the head of the Peace Corps, I believe, in Kenya, uh, one of the first uh, uh, country directors in Kenya. And so both of them highly influenced me. And I, um, so I did go to the Peace Corps and while I was in Peace Corps, I ended up coming out. And so I became, um, you know, I, I, I jokingly tell people I became more black, more gay and more Christian than I'd ever been in my life. And I'd so of course had been all of those things, but I hadn't really integrated those things. And so that led me on a journey to doing social justice work. I worked for, um, several organizations. And then, um, in 2013, I had my first job that was within, uh, diversity and inclusion, that's what we called it at the time, it wasn't equity, um, at um, a hospital in New York, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. 
um, and then um, I was there for five years and then got picked up um, and asked to consider work at um, uh, Planned Parenthood. And, you know, I understood the mission, was down with it, um, but the opportunity to lead in that space um, as the inaugural, at the time I was the vice president of, um, of uh, DEI, um, and grow that, uh, or that part of our work from being um, me as an individual contributor, working with a consultant, to now I have a team that uh, works on these issues uh, throughout, um, throughout the national office, as well as uh, we do some work with our, um, with our affiliates in states uh, through some training programs. You know, it's interesting, um, George, you know, as I think about um, Black uh, black folks and their relationship with uh, Planned Parenthood. And frankly, just um, I think conceptions around what Planned Parenthood is for um, and how it's it's very commonly or most popularly tied to like an abortion clinic. Like that's what Planned Parenthood is all for. Um, I'm curious, like in your work or in just just based on your own background and the community that you engage, what are common conversations or misconceptions you believe uh, that you're that um, or what are what are some common misconceptions regarding the work of Planned Parenthood um, and its relationship with the its historical relationship with Black folks at large? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that's a real question. I remember when I went to um, take the role. I have a, um, um, a fraternity brother, line brother, who said to me, um, "You know about the history of Planned Parenthood, right? You you good with that?" And I kind of was like. And he was a social worker. He is a social worker. And at the time, I didn't quite understand exactly what the question was, because my understanding from um, and that's what you asked about, you know, my initial understanding was more about Planned Parenthood as a healthcare provider. And what I understood in terms of um, um, specifically women, but I later learned there was some men, too, who were going to Planned Parenthood, it really was about healthcare writ large and thinking about it. And, you know, I think there were uh, folks that I later learned um, certainly made choices to have abortions and that was a part of their healthcare and a part of their own journey and, and their self-autonomy and deciding, you know, what they wanted for their life and how it was gonna, how it was gonna show up for them. Um, but those were the anecdotes. And then I think I began to learn more that most people don't realize that Planned Parenthood is the, the nation's leading provider of sexual and reproductive health for all people, um, as well as the largest provider of sex education. Um, we serve uh, folks with care and compassion uh, and with respect throughout the, uh, the over 600 uh, clinics that exist. From my view at the national office, one of the things that I always want to make sure of is that the message about our relationship is, um, you know, it has definitely had a history that's undeniable. And I would say that part of the reason my job exists is to actually look very straightforward at that history and to say, and now where do we go with this? How do we address some systemic things that have existed? And, you know, and I don't have to tell you this, it's not just Planned Parenthood. Any organization that's been around for 100 years has got a history. Um, and I think that we are working hard to um, not so much say that what has happened in the past in ways that um, 
certainly didn't support black folks or uh, indigenous folks or other population um, didn't happen. That's absolutely not true. It's looking at it and saying, how are we going to do better and how do we address some of those historic wrongs? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, especially as you think about um, with, again, the murder of George Floyd brought on a lot of um, public reckoning and things of that nature. I recall um, in, in April of last year, uh, Planned Parenthood, um, um, you know, they they were they responded and, you know, talked a little bit more about uh, some of the, the opposition challenges to to, to Margaret Sanger. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, as, as we talk about even just like your role, um, can we get a little bit more specific about, you know, the inequities that you're seeing and the work uh, that you're doing to help address those historical inequities um, as far as Planned Parenthood? Yeah. So and I don't want to talk around the margins on that. I mean, you're referencing, you know, one of the things that came out uh, last year in April was an article from in The New York Times. It was an op-ed by our president, Alexis McGill Johnson. Um, who um, I thought said it really clearly. You know, Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, founded the American Birth Control Movement, and she later founded Planned Parenthood. And it's important for us to simultaneously acknowledge Sanger's impact on sexual and reproductive health, while also denouncing the means by which she advanced this work. Um, you know, I referenced uh, the comment that one of my um, my brothers made to me. And, you know, I had to go back and do some research myself. I was like, oh, wait a minute, what is this? You know, she believed in eugenics. And it was an ideology that labeled certain people unfit to have children. And although at the time, Sanger probably would have argued that it was, it was not based on race and religion, we absolutely understood that eugenics is inherently racist and it's inherently ableist. Um, and we can't we can't gaslight that. Sanger's belief in eugenics in, a, in alignment with white supremacy in order to further the mission is in direct opposition to the mission of Planned Parenthood today. You know, we believe in all people for every race, religion, gender, ability, and status and geography are all full human beings and they have the right to determine their own future and decide whether and when to have children. Um, I think that that is really important to denounce the beliefs of Margaret Sanger. And as an organization, we've certainly done that, not just because it's important for us to say it, but patients have to know where we stand, but so that our staff also, and that's the work that I am most uh, focused on. Our staff know where we stand as an organization, right? Because, you know, again, there are different degrees of education that um, you know, our staff has around this thing. And this is kind of where the equity work is so important. You know, I mentioned that, um, I think I mentioned that, you know, I was talking a little bit about my background. One of the things that has definitely changed is that now, and to your point earlier, uh, Zach, most organizations understand that it's not just about diversity and inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. But there was a time when we were actually only talking about diversity. And frankly, you know, it was diversity that really just was around race. Yeah. If you think about historically how, you know, jobs like mine got started, they started out of this, um, you know, it was affirmative action. Mm-hmm. It was out of glass ceilings that I might argue still exists in some places. Um, but it was out of lawsuits. Mm-hmm. It was out of those kind of places that were directly tied to discrimination 
um, uh, 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 around race and specifically black folks. You know, it then we very quickly we looked at the issues that were happening with women, and you know later I can say more about intersectionality and how important that is. But that was you know that those were the kinds of things that were early on the shape. Obviously, we've expanded to look at you know the uh, inclusion of LGBT folks in the workplace, people with disabilities, people with um, um, in some organizations certainly in you know bigger organization. Veteran status is another place. Um, and then you may even get ERGs or employee resource networks or other, um, other groups uh, shaped around other identity markers. And I think all of those things come back to the fact that the work is still not done when we look at equity. And I think it's really important to, and the distinction we're making in our work is that when we talk about equity, that we really are talking about equity in its very basic you know definitions it's reducing barriers and discriminations of course and leveling the playing field so to speak but it's also about an ownership stake and i think that's really important and if i were going to write a book and you can you can quote me on this and say george did this first uh and we can say we got it uh we got <laughs> it <laughs> written down in our talk but the book i'd want to write is when you ask most people like just on the street, you just said, hey, you know, what does equity mean to you? At some point, ownership is important to how they understand that definition. And that's irrespective of whether they own anything in quotes or not, right? Yeah. But I mean, I think about when I first learned the word equity, mm-hmm. it was my parents talking about their house. It was, you know, um, I, I mean, in my, you know, my parents were middle-class people, but that, it, that was a really, but it wasn't just about like being middle class and, you know, this is a way you mark your, you know, your, your thing. It was, I have put in, I expect to get out at a later point. That's what that ownership is about. Right. And that's the thing that also shapes belonging, Zach. That's what gets folks feeling like I have a commitment to this. And, you know, one of the things that I would expand that definition, and like I said, this is in my book, this isn't really ready yet, right? <laughs> but I, I, I talk about a little bit more that the ownership, if you think about it as a pie, it can't be finite, mm. right? And I think that's where we really struggle because people start saying, well, wait a minute, if you're talking about equity, does that mean then that you're just talking about like, up to a particular percentage and then somebody's not going to get anything and i'm going to say no that's not what i'm talking about ownership i mean i think that it's about expanding the pie and being clear that you own so many things that have nothing to do with what materially you can produce so you own your intellectual ideas your creativity your ability to expand the scope of a conversation or to steer direction based on your networks all of those things have a piece of the ownership stake that I do believe everybody who has a belonging will feel like they can contribute. Because, you know, I think one of the things that this organization has learned is that we've done so much soul searching, like most organizations have, right? And if we aren't clear about the fact that we've listened to folks, you know, um, well, we've, we've heard them. We haven't always listened. You know, we have to um, also be um, forthright 
in terms of where we're going with people, um, in terms of what our processes is, showing what we're doing, demonstrating that it's not just that we heard, we're actually making plans. And those are some of the things that are really important, um, you know, at least for the organization as we frame these conversations. The way I see it is nobody knows exactly what freedom looks like. I mean, we all can imagine we want freedom, um, but we don't know. I mean, we live in a country where so many of the things that all of us need just for basic, basic survival are tied to commerce and a commercial system and a capitalist system that irrespective of how left or right you are, you participate in. Now, that's, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing that I think is really important that since we don't know, we do know what it will take to frame us up. And so if we have some guideposts, I think, you know, if we, we look at equity and look at a framework, and I can talk more about that, and we actually think about what's the accountability measures to get some of this stuff done, we're going to ultimately, you know, if you don't think of it as a ladder, but think of it more as a train track, we're going to get into the horizon and we are going to see something that's going to be pretty amazing. Um, you know, it's interesting. So going back a little bit, you know, you talk about equity and connecting equity to ownership. What isn't being said out loud when we talk about equity and ownership is power, right? With ownership comes control and a voice to actually that you and you have power and influence to wield, but you also have some direct uh, leverage to apply to get the things that you want. And so, you know, when we talk about equity, I agree um, that connecting it back to ownership and really being more transparent about the reality of power dynamics, um, you know, it is important. And thank you, um, you know, for the language uh, regarding, um, you know, uh, Planned Parenthood Federation of America's position on Margaret Sanger. And also uh, to your point around like the the um, the the services that Planned Parenthood um, provides um, holistically from a healthcare and health access perspective. You know, you talked also about intersectionality, um, you know, you, George, like you exist um, in a variety of spheres simultaneously. Um, and I'm curious to know, like. How does how does your own experience as a um, as a gay man who also happens to be a minister who also is who also happens to be black um, um, who also has you know a, 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 who has a you know a, who is an army brat like you know what is it what is how do how do those um, how does that co- cocktail of experience and perspective uh, come together to help inform the work that you do at Planned Parenthood? I ask because I think about that. I feel like there are folks who would say there's a contradiction for a man of the cloth to be working at an organization like Planned Parenthood. I'm curious as to like how you, if at all, reconcile or if you feel a need to reconcile all those different things happening simultaneously. You know, so I I love the the second part of what you asked. So my smart answer is if I feel (laughs) I think that's the subjective mood of life, right? The mites and maybes. And I think that it might depend on the day. But if if I'm feeling like I did want to respond to that, I do think it comes back to understanding that it's not an if about who I am. I am all of these things. Mm. And how I show up never really gets to divorce one from the other. 
Now, maybe you see my blackness first. And I actually think that that is, you know, undoubtedly what roots me and grounds me as um, not just as a human being in, a, in the world, but also just in my experiences. Being a cisgender man is also something that uh, very much stands up. You see that right away. You know, you may learn um, about my, um, you know, my husband or my life that might suggest, oh, wait, okay, I didn't realize that. Um, but it's very much present with me. I don't, I don't get a choice to leave it back mm -hmm. or to, um, you know, to have it out. I mean, there are people, I suppose, who would, mm -hmm. you know, but I think the, the other thing that is true is very early I learned that my my minister used to say, I'd rather see a sermon any day than hear one. Mm. And I think that it is about how I live my life and how I show up. That's really important. And when I'm in, um, um, you know, when I am um, most uh, most comfortable, it is when all of those points of me really show up. Um, and, you know, feel like I can I can be present in a conversation or or with folks. Now, as an organizational leader, one of the things when I talk about intersectionality, it really is talking about looking at why we use. And I referenced this earlier, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's look with a black feminist perspective that absolutely understands that it is the intersection of race and gender in this country that has often been at the crossroads that's been the most difficult to break. And, but if you can look at both of those things as the true intersection, then it opens the aperture to so many of the other concerns that people might have who aren't black or who aren't women. Um, it has never been our policy, and I would say probably Kimberly Crenshaw would say the same thing, you know, that says you just leave it there. Of course, you have to have a starting point to actually get a framework. So let me just say it this way. You know, we understand how anti-Blackness has worked in this country and has worked. Um, and it's, it's, that's not negotiable. That is a fact. <laughs> it is a fact in our policies. It's an effect in how we live. It's, you know, I mean, just go on down the line. When we talk about health care and inequality. It is tied to, a lot of it is tied to uh, disparities that are rooted in, in, in racial discrimination. All of those things come back to equity. And that's why our big bet is on if you can actually face inequitable systems, look at them and make corrections with an intersectional framework, you'll just get further down. And those were the guideposts I was talking about. Um, you know, uh, there's a quote that reads that in the struggle for freedom, the people most exposed to different forms of oppression understand best how to dismantle them. You know, and our goal is to break down barriers of white supremacy, white supremacy and anti-blackness. Um, that's what will result in liberation and freedom, not just for black people, but for everybody. You know, George, I love this conversation. The fact that um, we're talking about liberation and freedom, and, and you said something earlier, we don't know what freedom looks like just because of the nature of our journey and experience here in America. Um, like, have we been fully free yet? You know, the, like there's a, there's a question that I think is worth debating, like how free are we even today? Um, you know, Planned Parenthood provides, you know, access from a healthcare equity perspective um, to so many 
impoverished folks um, who have been um, disempowered and, and uh, impoverished because of white supremacist legis- legislation and a story, um, a historicity of um, inequitable treatment, um, both intentional and um, and maybe from like a disparate impact perspective. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, as as we talk about intersectionality, like, and we talk and like and to your to the to what you just uh, quoted, um, you know, black trans women continue to be really at the bottom um, of of all um, just treatment and experiences, um, across, certainly across the world. But I'm, you know, we're here in America, so we can talk about America. I'm curious as you think about um, healthcare support or healthcare healthcare access for trans folks, like. Um, like what, where, where, as you look at Planned Parenthood, do you, are you, uh, excites you or gives you hope? Well, so that's actually a really good example. I mean, it's one of the reasons, even when we talk about like intersectionality and looking at that cross uh, section of work, you know, we, we really, I don't want to even say did our homework, but I think we have learned because we've done it wrong a bunch of times. Mm to really be much more considered of their trans experience. We did an, in a, an internal um, um, audit um, that really uh, got us to um, look at the experiences of our staff and to think about our patients, like all organizations that do healthcare. You have these different, you know, management or um, engagement surveys to see where we're, where we're missing the mark, you know, and we learned like the, the trans experience, even of our employees are trans non-binary, because I want to use both of those and they're different things, um, experiences even amongst black folks, right? So if you look at a list and I wish I could, I'm moving my hands because in my mind, I'm, I'm kind of a visual learner, right? So if you look at the trajectory and you said, okay, we're going to rank everybody. <laughs> and usually even, you know, in, in that ranking, um, uh, people of color typically don't fare as well or think their engagement is not as strong as, uh, as, as white folks in the organization or even on the patient side, right? That's, yeah. that's probably not a big surprise to anybody. But then when you begin to dissect the experience of folks who, it's, uh, who are non-gender uh, conforming or um, trans, it's even lower. And so that brings back the question of what I was talking about in terms of why it's so important to get into the subsets of what it means to look at an equitable framework. Because equity also means you don't treat everybody equal. So it's not like you just say, okay, all the black people need this, because we know that that is in fact not true. And so we have to do more and think more about, well, what are our inclusion measures? Um, certainly on the, in the staff side, um, I can certainly say that we are, we got a lot of work to do. We've done a lot, but we certainly to make sure that even in our language, um, our pronoun usage, et cetera, we got to continue to do that. Now, as it goes, you know, I, I think I said, um, you know, we're a federation. And so I can only influence from where I sit in the national office. But there are a couple of places where we can actually hold our affiliates to asking these questions. But the good news is many of our affiliates are leading in this space. Um, I I have the story of one of our CEOs that I work with closely a lot. Once they began to look at an intersectional framework and to do more as a result of some recent studies we did internally, they have seen their engagement scores with black and trans and non-binary staff actually go up 
by 50%. And that's just over like a year long period. I mean, that's phenomenal. That's not something, you know, and that's actually in the clinics. That's in one of the affiliates. And there are other uh, affiliates who, you know, have similar stories to report about how they're making changes and aggressively tackling like these, some of these uh, disparities. You know, George, we've talked a lot about um, the, the, the history of Planned Parenthood and the work it's doing in communities. Let's let, before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about uh, the internal work that you're leading for um, for employees. Um, and, and so, you know, what what are you excited about? You know, as, as you as you look at your role, and you, you think about 2022 and onward. What are the things that that get you excited about the work that you're leading and, and for the for the uh, the employee communities at your organization? Zach, I would be a big old liar if I told you that there aren't days I come home and go, why on earth did I take this work on? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was talking to one of my colleagues uh, just before we got on the call and just said, she goes, well, it's Friday. I know. I went, no, you don't know. And I'm actually glad you don't. Um, there are days that it is really hard. And I think it's those days also that I realize that the arc is long and the work just takes a lot of time. When I look back at my career and think about where I've had success and where I get excited, I mean, it's been not so much in fits and starts, but I do believe it has gotten stronger as my resolve to make a difference has has continued to improve. Um, or to grow deeper, as I'd like to say. Now, there are three things I told the staff um, at a uh, meeting uh, recently. And I said, what I would love to see in the work that we continue to do mm. is to really focus on three areas, trust, listening, and belonging. And I, throughout this conversation today, have sort of alluded to each of those. But what I keep going with the staff with is, you know, we've got to have trust that what we're trying to work on is going to make a difference. It's going to build the framework because I can't promise you what tomorrow looks like, but I can certainly tell you that there are a whole lot of things that we can do better. And if we trust the process to actually listen to the people who've been most approved, listen, uh, uh, most uh, effective, listen and really, really sit with what it means to, um, no matter where you sit on the spectrum, right? what it means to understand the data that shows the experience of Black women tells us the most about what we can do to change the course of history. That does not say that Black women are perfect and there aren't mistakes and all that other stuff. But when we look at this country and see, like, when we've trusted Black women, what has made the difference? I mean, we've, we've just grown by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's trust. It's also listening. I, I talked a lot about that, not just hearing, you know, what people are saying, but really actively listen. And the way you do that and you demonstrate that is not only do you listen, but you make um, investments that say, I'm actually trying to make a difference because then people actually see what you're doing. Um, again, back to the what I said earlier, you know, people want to they rather see what you're doing than hear what you're doing any day. And then the last thing is creating this sense of belonging. That really, 
I mean, this definition of equity has been batted around and people have been talking about it forever. And Alexis and I, Alexis McGill Johnson is the president, and I had this conversation is when it really clicked for me. Um, she said it in another context, but I'd been saying all along that part of what I didn't think we were making the message around was really about this piece of equity being not just leveling the playing field, but also ownership. And I think that that is actually resonating as I'm having conversations with other employees and even folks on my team. I just did a retreat um, last week um, with my team. They saw each other for the first time in two years. Um, and some of them are new and had never actually seen each other. So they didn't even know how tall or short, you know, all those kind of yeah. little things you take for granted. And as we were talking about the ownership piece, one of my, uh, one of the folks on my staff who originally was kind of like, I don't know, because, you know, he, um, uh, they tend to be a little bit more um, um, left um, sometimes uh, in terms of their perspective. But when they actually heard and understood ownership as a piece of belonging, it was like, it was like, it just, it was not just a light bulb, it was an inspiration. And I think we can do more just to help folks understand how these three things of trust, listening, and belonging actually tie together. Um, so that's what gives me joy. I mean, and I think that that's something that, you know, I take in a lot of conversations. It's not just about my work at Planned Parenthood. I, I love the mission of this organization, and I've, I've come at a really critical and amazing time um, there's just, I mean, the leadership of Alexis, um, it's just, it's, it's incredible on so many levels. And I don't take for granted having a leader that knows so much, um, about how these systems work and understands it. Um, and it influences me in other parts of my life. It helps me when I'm in a conversation with my brothers and we're just laughing about something and I have to think about, well, what's the privilege I have? just being who I am and how I show up. Um, and there is a privilege. Um, I mean, I'm college educated. I'm at a certain place in my life. Um, you know, go down the list. And if I can't understand how a lot of my benefits have happened, probably on the backs of women who had the same, the same um, uh, potential and trajectory, then, I, I, you know, I'm not good in the conversation or anybody else, if I'm not honest in the conversation about where my privilege sits. George, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for being against me. We we got to have you back. All right. I, I know you're moving and shaking, um, but I've, I've found this conversation to be so many things. Um, and I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate you. Um, look, I'm going to give you um, give you a little one last thing before we let you go is any shout outs or pardon where you've been giving, you've been dropping jewels this entire interview, but I want to give you one last moment to shout out um, final thoughts and then we'll let you go. You know, I think one of the, the things I don't want to miss is when I think about Planned Parenthood, a significant portion of the folks who get care in any of our centers, um, are brown and black folks. The work we are doing at the national office isn't just about the national office. 
It's about the fact that when our staff has an understanding and they are doing, we work in service to the affiliates, right? We we're out there, you know, providing all manners of services from legal services, you know, down to technical assistance um, in the field. When our staff has an understanding and particularly our black and brown staff has an understanding of what we're trying to get right, it communicates to the staff in the field. And that staff in the field communicates then to our patients. There is nothing like having a patient I meet if I happen to have on a, you know, some swag or whatever, or even since I've taken this job, the number of friends of mine, close friends who've told me about a health experience they've had at Planned Parenthood is just, I mean, first of all, I've just been blown away by it. But then to have them say, hey, we're in your corner. I'll, I'll end with this story. There's a, um, a brother of mine actually sent me a, a gift and it was, um, it was a sweatshirt. He's a fraternity brother. And um, he sent me a sweatshirt and I was all excited about it. And I was like, and I wasn't expecting it. So I sent him a note back and said, all right, how do I, owe you? what do I, what do I got to pay you? And he sent me back. He's like, you don't owe me nothing. I was like, no, man, come on, let me, let me do something. Now, this man is a minister in Texas. You heard what I said, Zach, right? I did. Okay. <laughs> He's a minister in Texas. Um. You know, he, he went to college with me, so let it not just be inferred. He's a black man who is an ordained Christian minister working in Texas. And so I sent him a note and I said, hey, what are you going to do? You know, let me let me do something. Let me make a donation for you. And he said, give it to Planned Parenthood. Now. We have never had like deep philosophical conversations about work. But what I do know is that what his work is and where he is, is in service to the people. And he made the, uh, the connection, the understanding of what I do and where I work. And really just, I mean, without a whole lot of um, uh, uh, preacherisms, he was clear that the connection to what we do nationally absolutely makes a difference to what happens in the field. Um, and I actually made the donation to um, an affiliate in Texas. That to me is where change happens. That to me is where our power lies in terms of understanding how we are interconnected, how we get together and how these lines are actually um, uh, built in stronger ways and we break oppression across a whole bunch of things. George, man, I'm going to let you, man, we got to have you back. Thanks again for being on the show. Man, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right. Peace. Yo, um, I want to shout out George Walker, Chief Equity Officer of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Thank you so much for sharing your journey i was so so paused at george's vulnerability his honesty uh, he didn't shy away from a thing his willingness to have a really frank conversation and his his grappling with multiple realities and existing in such a highly intersectional way blessed me it blessed me in real time and i hope 
that it was beneficial for you. I want to shout out all organizations seeking to provide equitable and accessible care for historically marginalized communities. I want to continue to challenge uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders. Folks, um, yo, this is just not the season to be trying to get a bag off of this. It's not. And I know I know some of y'all are talentless hacks. And so this is the way that you figured out you can expand your network and your brand and your um, but this is not just a series of buzzwords. This work impacts people's real lives. This is not like a political game of, of chess or like something as a hobby. There are people who are going to pass away as a result of these decisions. There are people who are going to no longer be on this earth. They're going to die prematurely because of these decisions. And these people who are impacted, they work, they have jobs. Some of them you manage. If you don't manage some of these people, some of the employees that you do manage know them. They're their family members or their friends. These are real human beings. This is not theoretical work. This is real life. Again, I want to thank you, the listener for listening to Living Corporate. Uh, plenty of announcements coming up this week. Make sure you um, follow us everywhere that we're everywhere. Listen to this everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, etc., etc., etc. I love y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.